If you would, open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. In this pastoral and yet polemical letter, epistle, John has established that there are two defining aspects of the gospel proclamation. First of all, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, the historical manifestation of God in the flesh. As he opens, you'll notice that there's no, hi, how are you, this is John writing to believers in a certain place. Uh, I thank God for you. He jumps right in and says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. This is key to this epistle. The second is the fact that God is light. This is in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. These truths are fundamental and must control, they must guide and condition our living if we call ourselves Christians. All Christian profession is to be judged based on these two truths. But one might say, wait a minute, what's this about judging? Well, the fact is there are false teachers who have come in and have denied certain truths and have twisted others. John writes this letter to challenge these men, but also to encourage those who are true believers. He begins by challenging three false claims of these teachers, and he answers each one. Just to review what we've looked at, each one begins in chapter 1 with the, the phrase, if we claim. The first false claim is, that sin does not affect our relationship, our fellowship with God. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And John says this isn't true, verse number 5, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another, and our sins have been forgiven. Truth is more than mere belief. It is, in fact, fellowship. And as we've seen, enlightenment is communal, not individual. The second false claim is that sin does not exist in our nature, that we are not, in fact, sinners. If we claim to be without sin, as the false teachers did, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In a sense, this is an extension of the first claim. Um, John answers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are not to deny that we are sinners. We should admit it, we should confess it, and receive the forgiveness that God has made possible. He will forgive our sins, he will cleanse us, because he is faithful and just. The third false claim is that sin does not show itself in our conduct. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. See, if we say we have not sinned, or that we do not sin, first of all, we are deliberately lying, verse number 6. We are deceiving ourselves, verse number 8. But in verse number 10, we are calling God a liar. We are saying that God, in fact, has lied. So there's a progression of sorts. We lie to others. Secondly, we lie to ourselves. But then thirdly, we call God a liar. And John says this is not the case. As chapter 2 opens, My dear children, 
I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The question may have come up in the minds of the readers. John is anticipating this. How do I know if I or others are in the light? How do I know if my sins have been forgiven that I'm a child of God? John has challenged the false teachers on three fronts, but now he gives three tests by which we are to judge others, but ourselves as well, as to whether or not we are in the light if we are living in God's truth. We looked at the first two tests last week, the moral test, that is obedience. The second is social, that is that we love one another. The third one we will look at today, and that is doctrine or belief in Jesus Christ. Just to review what we looked at last week, the first test is found in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2. If you look at that, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I mentioned last week one of the two key words uh, in the, God, the epistle of 1 John. Uh, I think most people would say it's love. And certainly August, Augustine said it was the theme of this epistle. But there is a word that appears more often than the word love. And that is no. It appears, I think, at least five times more than love. The significance of this is that the false teachers say that they know that they have special knowledge, even secret knowledge. They claim to be enlightened with true knowledge. Others are in darkness, and it's a good thing God sent us to you to show you the right way. Um, to say that one knows God is not being presumptuous. What is, being presu- what is presumptuous is to say, I know God, but then to live a life of sin. That is to say, I'm in the light, I know God who is light, but I choose to live in darkness. Uh, Paul wrote this to Titus. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So the first test is whether or not they are obeying the truth. I think verse number six is the key to everything, but it's a powerful verse. If you look at verse number six, um, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? That's how a person who claims to know the truth is supposed to live. I've mentioned this years ago, but um, we used to have someone here in the church, and he was telling me, he was very excited, he had met someone who had the gift of prophecy. And this, this man would make predictions about various people, claimed to be a Christian. Um, but he was also an active heroin addict. Now, to be an addict is not, does not disqualify one from being a Christian, but it is, in, in a sense, he was choosing to walk in darkness while claiming to be in light. And John's like, no, the first test is obedience. Are they obeying the truth? Um, I find it interesting that in verses 3 and 4, um, what is commanded is not specified. Not until we get to verse number five, and that command is love, which is the second test. 
Verse number seven. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The second test for a professing Christian is to whether, is to whether or not they love the brothers, if they love their fellow Christians. John obviously loves the people he's writing to, otherwise he's being hypocritical. He begins by saying, dear friends. And now he singles out one of the commandments that they are to obey, test number one, and that is that they are loved. And he says that this is an old command as well as a new command. It's old, I think, because we see it in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, we're told to love our neighbors ourselves. Why is it new? Because we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. In some sense, one might say for those that John is writing to, it is an old command. Ever since they became believers, they know that they were supposed to love one another. But the newness of it, the freshness of it, is seen in the person of Jesus, someone who lived a life of love. And as has been said before, 1 Corinthians 13 is actually a portrait of the Lord Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus was like, read 1 Corinthians 13. John then digresses. He digresses on two matters. The first is the church and the second is the world. And rather than going through that, um, I just want to point out something that most people are familiar with when they come to 1 John chapter 2. Um, The world is a system that stands in opposition to God and is marked by three characteristics. The cravings of the sinful man, that is the sin within us. The lust of his eyes, that is temptation that is outside of us, so within and without. And then the boasting of what he has and does. The King James has the pride of life, uh, pride and possession. So that the system of the world finds sin within us, Temptation with outside of us and possessions that seek to define who we are. John tells his readers, this doesn't come from God. This is not from God. He is light. There's no darkness at all. But the second thing is, this is temporary. The world is passing away. So the choice is yours. Light or darkness. That which is eternal or that which is temporary. Now, having dealt with obedience and love, the first two tests, he comes to the third one. That is doctrine or belief. There are at least three parts to this test. I'll have to break it down. Be patient with me. The first is found in verses 18 to 21. The difference, the distinction between Christians and heretics. And then the nature and effect of heresy in verses 22 and 23. And then finally, two safeguards that God has given us against heresy. The first part of this test could take up the entire sermon, and I don't want that to happen. Well, I do, but that's not going to happen. But there are at least two significant issues that I think people become really confused about, and that I will spend some time on. Verse number 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. 
two issues here, the last hour and the Antichrist. We find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament references to the last days. Micah 4.1, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes uh, from Joel, in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see, see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The opening verse of the epistle of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Second Peter three. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own desires. Second Timothy three. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And then fascinatingly, in the epistle of Jude, uh, one chapter, verses 17 and 18, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Jude is actually quoting Second Peter. We have Jude quoting from uh, Peter's second letter. Now, we need to be clear about something. Either the apostles were mistaken because they're like, the second coming is almost here. It's the last days. Or they understood the coming of Jesus as marking the beginning of a period of time we would call the last days. And in fact, this is what we find in scripture. The last days are those days between the first coming of Jesus into the world and his return. Everything before that is looking ahead to the time in which the Messiah will come and he will usher in the last days. This is the time of the church. The church exists in what we call the last days. Okay? We exist between the coming of Jesus and the return of, of Jesus. By the way, Advent is almost upon us. It's almost the Christmas season. Advent, we remember the coming of Jesus into the world as a child but we also anticipating his victorious return. You might say, well, Damon, yeah, that's all well and good, but that's not what John says, is it? He doesn't say it's the last days. What does he say? It's the last hour. And he says it twice in verse number 18. So what can he mean? Well, I think that his first readers, and hopefully those afterwards, would have some sense of what he means, not because of everything I've given you from Micah, from Joel, from Acts, from the book of Hebrews, but from what he's just written. If you look at verse, verse number eight, yet I am writing you a new command, its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. That is, the time has come. The light has come into the world. And then verse number 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I would suggest to you that John is not thinking chronologically. I think that's what we're thinking. Oh, last. So, so after last hour, then that means something really, really big is going to happen after the last hour. I don't think that's what John intends at all. His focus is theological. That is to say, 
and by the way, if you were listening when I was reading the various passages, one of the things that they keep saying about the last days is there is opposition to the gospel. There are scoffers. There are people who will fight the gospel. This is what John is saying here. This is how we know it is the last hour, because the Antichrist is coming. And there are many Antichrists. This is how we know it is the last hour. So it isn't a matter of chronology. It's a matter of theology. That because the light has come into the world, the darkness is fighting against it. This brings us to the second issue. That is the Antichrist and many Antichrists. I think many people, many non-believers, are in fact familiar with the term Antichrist and the concept as presented by different theologies. But I would suggest to you humbly that most of these people are quite mistaken. Did you know that the word Antichrist and Antichrist only appear in 1 John and 2 John? Nowhere else in the New Testament. You'd expect it to show up in Revelation, right? Because who wrote the book of Revelation? John. But Antichrist only shows up here. Well, that should tell us something. Now, what some people have done is said, well, you know, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the man of sin, that's the Antichrist. But that's not what Paul says. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the beast. That's the Antichrist. But that's not what John says. He very easily could have said that. And he does not. I would point out to you what John says in verse 18. As you have heard. Okay? Meaning this is something that the apostles had preached. And it's not some prophecy about some guy in the future. Okay? It is, in fact, about something that is existing in their own time. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which are oftentimes referred to as the little apocalypse, Jesus spoke of false Christs. Not Antichrist, but false Christ. Pseudo Christoi in Greek. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. But John doesn't say false Christ. Okay? He does not have in mind people who claim to be Christ. We've had plenty of those. Um, but that's not what he's talking about. He is speaking of someone who is a denier of Christ. Okay? If you look at chapter 4, verse number 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So that which is Antichrist already existed in John's time. It's not some special guy with a big A on his chest, you know, claiming to be the Christ. No. It is the spirit which is against Christ. And it exists in more than one individual. In the next part of the test, which we will see in a moment, in verse number 22, who is the liar? Verse number 22. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So we should not conjure up some this super guy in the future who is the Antichrist, who will rule the world or try to do so. That's not what John's talking about at all. And remember, he's the only writer in the New Testament who uses that word, that designation. John is, in a pastoral way, trying to guide his dear children, as he calls them, to be able to discern who is a true believer and who is a heretic or a false teacher. 
Now, let's look at verses 19 to 21. They went out from us, the false teachers, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belong, had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and there is no lie, and because no lie comes from the truth. Those who are not true believers do not belong to the people of God, thus they do not remain with the people of God, and they, this is the proof, this is the evidence that they are not believers. If you could have an illustrated Bible, there would be flashing lights here at verse number 19. Because some people think, well, if you don't agree with me and you went out from me, it's because you don't belong to us, you don't belong to the Lord, you are a heretic. Um, no. We should not imagine that just because someone disagrees with us, they in fact may be in error. The issue here is the person of Christ. That is the issue, not some esoteric or some marginal thing that we may disagree about. It's the person of Christ. It is a doctrinal test, but I think it also shows the importance, the centrality of the church. We who live in a very individualistic society have forgotten far too quickly and too often that we are the people of God as a congregation, as a people. God's purpose since Abraham has been to have a people, not individuals. The anointing that he speaks of here, we will see as we go along, is an initiation into the gospel. It is when we receive the Spirit of God by which we know the truth. Part two of this third question of the test, the nature and effect of the heresy, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Here it is. If we had any questions or doubt about false teachers and what they believed, now John states it explicitly, plainly. They deny that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah. Now, again, we need to be careful. They are not saying necessarily that Jesus was not the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Rather, they are denying that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the second member of the Trinity. They're non-Trinitarian. They deny that Jesus is God. We'll come to this again, because as we've seen in 1 John, John repeats himself, and in chapter 4, this will come up again, verses 1, 2, and 3. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how we rec- we can, you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And then in Second John, which is also one chapter, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, as best we can tell, the false teachers were teaching that, yes, Jesus, there was such a guy, Nazareth, uh, Mary was his mother, um, but he's just a regular guy. Until he got baptized, 
And then the Christ spirit came on him. the, The dove descended. And then when he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Christ spirit left him. So all in all, Jesus was just a guy. He was just a man who for a period of time, maybe three years, the spirit of God was on him in a special way. But yeah, that's it. He's the fulfillment of promises. But yeah, he's certainly not the son of God. And in this, they are antichrist. They do not believe that he is the eternal son. Therefore, they are denying the incarnation. God come in the flesh. Which means they do not have a relationship with God as father, because they do not have a relationship with God as son. So how do we safeguard ourselves against such false teaching? There are two safeguards against heresy in verses 24 to 27. First of all, the word, and secondly, the anointing of the spirit. Verse 24, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So two safeguards. First of all, see to it that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. This doesn't happen automatically. I think that's worth noting. Here, as I read this, I read it as someone who was raised in a Christian home that somehow I have this expectation that having been taught the truth as a child, that these truths will remain in me. And I think John would say, absolutely not. We must take care that the gospel remains in us. rather than seeking new ideas, because the old stuff may seem to become dry and boring. The Christian faith is rooted not only in certain historical events, the life and sacrifice of Jesus, but also the apostolic witness. John, Peter, the other apostles. That's how we have scripture. If the truth of the gospel remains in us, we will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And we will have the gift of eternal life. And here it comes, the key, I think, to this section, and perhaps the whole letter, is verse number 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. The ESV says they are trying to deceive you. The King James is much more blunt. It doesn't say trying to. He says that these people are seeking to seduce you. Not seeking. They seduce you. They, in fact, are trying to get you to go astray. So John writes and reminds them of basic truths. This is the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh. God is light. Don't let people lead you astray. The second safeguard against heresy is the anointing you received. This is mentioned earlier in verse number 20. We shouldn't be surprised. John is known to repeat himself. Um, You have received an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. While we are to see to it that the truth of the gospel remains in us, we have heard the gospel, and we need, by God's grace, to hang on to it, 
There is something about which I would argue we have little or no part, and that is something that God gives to us, the anointing of his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit teaches us. He indwells in us. This is real. As John tells us, it is not counterfeit. I would argue that the two safeguards, the first one is objective, if you wish. It is the truth. It's it's what John says at the beginning, the truth of who Jesus is. The second is much more of a subjective experience, that the Spirit of God has been given to us. But in both cases, they are gifts. They are gifts from God. And it is by these gifts that we are kept from false teaching and false heresy. I'm sorry, false teaching and heresies. I don't think you can have a false heresy, perhaps. In a culture that seems to worship innovation, we as God's people oftentimes find ourselves being more like the Athenians than we do like the believers in the first century. When Paul went to Athens, we are told that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. There's something kind of boring about not being political, about being conservative, about holding on, conserving the old truths, the truths we've heard our whole lives. It just after a while seems tedious, old, and may in fact become stale. One of the things that I've noticed in the church in my years living on this planet is that there are a number of people who are far more interested in who the Antichrist will be than they are in who Jesus Christ is. When I was in Bible school, they were like, it, it could be Henry Kissinger. Because, you know, if you add up the letters of his name, it comes out to 666. There's just this fascination with the, with the new, if you wish. And then when the 80s came along, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. You know, and then, oh. Are we not interested in who Jesus Christ is, who he was? Have we lost all interest in that? I think what we have forgotten and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we will be reminded, Thanksgiving is around the corner, that everything we have is gift. It is a gift from God. And if we see the truth of the gospel, it's because of God's grace. It's his gift. Have you ever been given a special gift? And, and maybe not even a big thing, just a small thing, but this, the thought thoughtfulness behind it. Anyway, somehow it becomes important. And for your whole life, that is special. And if anyone ever notices, if it's something on the bookshelf, on the mantel or something, and they're like, well, that's really interesting. Let me tell you the story. Somebody gave this to me. And then you give the backstory. That should be what the gospel is to us. Not necessarily on the bookshelf or on the mantel, but it is something that should remain fresh with us. It is a gift from God. Unless we think, oh man, Damon, I I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can hang on to the gospel as I need to. 
I would say, but you also have the Spirit. It's not all on you. You have the Spirit. And so these two safeguards against false teaching, that which is objective, we've got to hold on to the truth, that which is subjective, the Spirit within us, these are gifts from God. And by God's grace, will preserve us and keep us. That's why John writes this. And all these centuries later, it's still true. It's still true. We who are God's people, if we claim to live in him, we must walk as Jesus did. Not as a self-confident, self-reliant individual, but as someone who looked to the Father by the Spirit to do the things that he did. Let's pray together. Our Father, I think it is in part because of our history as a nation. We are a new nation. It's part of our culture. We just seem to delight in new things. Innovation. We seem to tire rather quickly of certain things. And this has crept into our hearts, even in the church. Jesus came in the flesh. The Son came and lived among us. The apostles saw him, talked to him, touched him. They heard what he had to say. And you are light. These are eternal truths. May we not tire of them. And as we are surrounded by things that would seek to take our faith away from you, may we remember, particularly those of us who we would say have been Christians almost all our lives, may we remember the gifts you've given us, the truth of your word, may we hold on to it, and the gift of your spirit. And by your grace, may we walk as Jesus did. Thank you for bringing us together today. And we remember uh, those that have been mentioned earlier, the friends of Rory who are expecting for Kim entering her third trimester. Watch over them. Keep them safe and the babies as well. Keep them in good health. For those that are away from us, for Tess and Brazil, for Guy in the Philippines, bring them back to us safely. And for each one of us, as we go through the world this week, keep us safe. We're again so grateful for Zib's safety. May we pray for one another. May we remember that all that we have from you is gift. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.